we are so thankful for your word. It is our only source of absolute wisdom and absolute truth. Lord, on our own, our, our minds are so small, and this world is so complicated. We cannot figure out how to live our lives. We cannot make out the basis, the foundation of the world on our own, Lord. We need you to speak to us. We don't even know how to live as followers of you apart from your word, Lord. But you are abundantly gracious to us. And I pray that as we look at your word right now, you would teach us. I pray that all of us who are your true sons and daughters, that we would represent that reality in our lives, Lord. That we would live in accordance with the instruction in your word such that when the world looks at us, they would see that we are not of this world, that we are citizens of a city that is not on this planet, Lord. And I pray that also our demonstration of the truth of your word in our daily conduct would also be a blessing to our fellow brothers and sisters. Give us all a deep love and concern for the holiness and righteousness of our brothers and sisters. And press upon our hearts our duty that we have to encourage one another, to disciple them. Please give us also humility to seek out discipleship. Give us humility, Lord, to submit and listen to your word now. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're back in Titus chapter 2 this week. Um, the section that we're in is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I, I told you uh, last time that this section is all about how different people and a variety of stations in life are to honor God, do good works in their particular role, their particular station. And Paul, um, he structured these instructions um, in something called a chiasm. I talked about last time. It's a, an ancient, common uh, literary structure, and it goes like this, where you say something to somebody. In our case, Paul says instructions to Titus personally. Then he says instructions to the older men, then to the older women, and then it's the chiasm that you were, we were going down, Titus, men, women. Then we get the women again. They're the middle. So we get the younger women. Then we go back up to what we had before, the men, the younger men this time, and then we're back at Titus. Basically, the point of it, of me explaining that, is that in verses 1 to 8, Paul's talking about uh, instructions to three main groups, Titus, the men, and the women, and then the older men and the younger women. So the reason today that we're going to be looking at verses 1 and then skipping all the way down to 7 and 8 is because that is the same topic. Paul just purposely split it up with putting other information in the middle. And um, so that's verses 1 to 8. It's about Titus and then the men and the women. Then in verses 9 and 10, Paul addresses another category of people within the church, and that's the slaves or the bondservants. That's going to take uh, a whole sermon to address, and so we'll do that the next time we are back in Titus. What we're going to do, therefore, this morning is, like I said, we're going to look at Paul's instructions to Titus in verse 1 of chapter 2, and then verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, and then we're going to do two other things. The two other things we're going to do is look at uh, a couple motifs, themes, for this section. Namely, we're going to look at the common motivation for all these different groups for righteousness that shows up in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. 
And then we're also going to consider the most common quality for all the groups. Basically, there's one main quality that Paul repeats for every different group. So what we're going to do, therefore, is read um, chapter 2, Titus 2, verses 1 to 10. Then we'll actually talk about the, the overarching motifs, the overarching themes. Think of that as the forest view. After we do that, we'll then come back and look at verse 1, verse 7, and verse 8, which is kind of down in the trees. And as I say that, you might think, okay, those are kind of three disparate things, and indeed, they are a bit different. Um, but I hope you'll see this morning in the sermon that all three of these find unity in their application, though. Basically, all three of these parts, they're teaching us how we are to represent the teaching that we hear in church, in Scripture, how we're to represent that and demonstrate it in our lives such that we would be a representation of Christ to the world. We would be lights in a dark world. All that being said, let's read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. By the way, one quick note I'd like to make is my points are actually a little bit different than the ones on the screen. So if AV2, if you could just keep it on the title page, and then for the points, you'll just have to listen to me say it, okay? I'll try and do a, a good job repeating it. Uh, that being said, point number one is this. Portraying sound doctrine to the world. Portraying sound doctrine to the world. We get uh, this point from the repeated motivation that Paul gives to the different groups for righteous living here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It shows up a motivation for good works, godliness, in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. Let's go ahead and look at each of those briefly. You can see the first time Paul brings up this motivation in verse 5 to the young women. He says that they are to be trained by the older women to be submissive to their own husbands. And what's the reason? That the word of God may not be reviled. That is, if the, in some way, if the young women were not submitting to their husbands, to people that are outside of the church, that might cause them to deride, criticize, revile the scriptures by which we get our teaching of how we are to live. Similarly, in verse 8, when Paul is talking to Titus about his preaching ministry, he says that he should have sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So there, Paul's saying that in some way, Titus' words need to be healthy, and they need to be whole in a way that they can't be condemned. 
If they're not, if they are lacking integrity, if there's some kind of corruption with the words, then the world is going to say something evil. And notice, it says something evil about us. So it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, make sure your speech is right so that no one will say anything evil about you in particular, Titus. It's a bigger thing. He says, Titus, if you mess up the things you say, if you say incorrect, false things, you are going to make uh, the world think that Christians as a whole, us all together, are evil. He's got a lot writing on him. Again, it's a concern with what the world is going to think about the doctrine that we preach by how we live. This shows up then in a positive form in uh, verse 10. When Paul is talking to slaves, he says that they are to likewise be righteous, godly, and good. And in the process, it says that by showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When the slaves live righteous, godly, holy lives, they're going to make the doctrine that they say they keep to, they're going to make it look good to the world. They're going to make it look beautiful. And so indeed, that is the common motivation that Paul gives in this section. We are to be concerned about our righteousness, our good works, We need to be concerned about that because the world is watching us. And if you live an unrighteous life while professing to believe the scriptures and follow Christ and be a Christian, and yet you then live in an ungodly, uh, selfish way, what are you going to do? You're going to make the world think that the doctrine that you believe is either evil or useless. Rather, when you live a godly life, When you actually do what Scripture tells you to do, the world may not be expecting it, but you're actually going to live a wonderful, whole, good, beautiful life. And your goodness, your trustworthiness, your faithfulness is going to cause them to say, hey, maybe I'm kind of wrong about this Christianity thing then. If it makes someone who's so kind, uh, so happy even in the midst of sad circumstances, basically if it's made this person be such a good person, Maybe there's something to it. I'm obviously not a good person. I'm obviously having trouble in my life. So the, the outsider will say, I should listen to what this person says about the truth. Now, such motivation is a bit paradoxical, isn't it? We are to do good deeds because the world is watching us. We, need, we want them to look at us and see the truth of Christianity. That's paradoxical though, right? Are we not all the time told, don't be people pleasers? Don't care about what people think about you. Care about pleasing God, audience of one. How can you have an audience of one and yet also be concerned with what the world is thinking about you? Furthermore, when we're talking about the world, I mean, what's this, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled? The world already does that. The world hates God's word. They reject it. They already revile it. It's not up to me if they're going to do that. They're going to do that because they hate the light. That's what Jesus says, right? Furthermore, again, it says that they're not going to say anything evil about us. Does not the world all the time say evil things about us? Aren't we all bigots? Aren't we all narrow-minded and Luddites and all of the above? I don't think us just doing good deeds is going to stop them from saying evil things about us. Why are we supposed to care all of a sudden about what the world thinks about us? I thought it was all about only serving our master, the Lord. Well, think of it this way. Um, Imagine... uh, some kind of fantasy here, that you are a very talented Renaissance portrait artist, okay? You're uh, friends with Michelangelo and Da Vinci and stuff, and you're hailed as a great portrait artist. And having such renown for your art, 
Uh, a great king, he hires you, he becomes your patron. And of course, what he wants you to do is he wants you to create a portrait of himself, uh, the official portrait. Now, if you do that, you being a great artist, you make a great, accurate representation of the visage of the king, is everyone going to like your painting? No. Some people are going to hate the king, and so they hate the picture, even if it looks like him. That's going to make them hate it more. Yeah, I remember that guy. I hate him. Second, maybe the king's an ugly guy, and so you're going to accurately present him as ugly, and people are going to say, yeah, it's an ugly painting. It's an ugly dude. If people hate your work because of that, though, that's not your problem. You just had to represent who the king was. He's not going to be mad at you. Um, you presented him as he truly is. But if, on the other hand, if you were tasked to make the portrait and you messed it up, you did not present the king as he actually looks, you made his nose too big, you made his ears too big, you made one eye higher than the other, well, then you should be concerned. The king might rightfully be mad at you. Then people are going to think, man, I didn't know we had such an ugly king. I always thought he was uh, more handsome. But now that I see this portrait, I realize he's kind of a weird-looking dude. That would be your fault, right? That's how it is for us. Your life is art. And you don't get to decide. You can't say, no, I'm not going to do the painting. No, when you say that you're a Christian, you are representing something intangible and a concrete form to the people that see your life. And the question is not, are you going to represent the intangible doctrine of Scripture to the world? It's, are you going to do it in a good way or a bad way? Are you going to be a good artist or a bad artist? Are you going to accurately present the beauty, wholeness, profundity of Christian teaching? Or are you going to make a caricature of it? Are you going to obscure it, make it unnatural? Indeed, that's a question I'd like to ask. Is your life a caricature of Christianity? Is it a cartoon? A caricature, you know, it's when you take a person and you exaggerate or oversimplify their features. Is that what you do with Christian teaching, with Christian morality? You exaggerate, you overamplify certain parts, and you take other important parts and you suppress them so much so that they seem to be irrelevant altogether. This is what Paul is warning about. In, in verse 5, when he says that the women need to be submissive to their own husbands, lest the word of God be reviled, he was thinking this. Christian teaching elevates women, gives them a dignity that was uncommon in the Roman world. That women would be regarded as equals with men before God in terms of salvation, that was groundbreaking. It probably would have been scandalous to most Romans, to most Cretans. And so then... If there were young Christian women who heard that, but then took it too far, and they said, in all respects, I'm now the same as a man. There's no difference between men and women. There's no difference between a husband and a wife. No difference between a mother and a father. If they did that, what's that going to do? It's going to make the world say, yeah, you're right. I told you this teaching was dangerous. I told you this teaching was disastrous. Look, these young women, once they've been told that they're equal before God, they're destroying households. They're destroying the family. Paul's saying, don't exaggerate it. Take your freedom, take the role, take the honor you've been given in Christianity, but be accurate with the representation of it in your life. Don't make a caricature of it. And now, hardly anyone in America is going to accuse the Bible of giving too much freedom to women, right? I don't think we have to worry about that one so much. What do we have to worry about? The opposite direction, right? The Bible does teach 
and that husbands have a unique role as the head of their wife, the head of the household. And that's true, that's accurate. And the world is wrong when they criticize us for holding to that biblical teaching. It's the truth. But just because that's the truth doesn't mean that we're exempt from making a character of that. Just because the world is inaccurate when they say that the Bible teaches toxic masculinity, that doesn't mean that some of us are not actually toxically masculine. Husbands, you have the role and right to lead your families. But do you do it in a loving and gentle way where you put them first? If you do that, what are you going to do? You're going to display the goodness of God's plan. You are going to adorn the teaching, the design of God. But if you use that authority for yourself, if you're harsh with your wife, if you're harsh with your children, if you have them slave away and you do nothing, the world is going to look at you and say, yeah, exactly, that's what I'm saying. This Christian teaching is backwards. Look how men take it and use it to abuse their wives. This happens all the time. Don't do that. Don't be a caricature of Christianity. Realize that pretty much everything that's taught in the Bible, every value that's presented, it's tempered by some other value. You can't just pick one value and ignore all the others. It's, I think it's the same thing when Paul says to Titus that his speech there in verse 8, his teaching needs to be sound, that it cannot be condemned. If Titus gets on hobby horses and he exaggerates certain parts of Christian doctrine, he doesn't present it accurately and as a whole. He's going to exaggerate it. He's going to make a caricature of theology, and it's going to open Christians to scorn. And of course, in verse 10, it's the opposite. The truth of Scripture, it shines forth in the whole world in its perfect balance, its perfect wholeness. It takes every value together, and it presents it perfectly. That's what we have in Christ. We have the perfect man. Yeah, Christ, he was the guy who said the children are to come unto me, who was gentle and forgiving to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He was also the same guy, though, who went and flipped over tables and told people they were vipers, who said woe to the religious leaders of the day. In Jesus, we have the perfect combination of every good characteristic. It's not by him in decreasing them. He perfectly represents them all. And that's what our teaching is. As Christians, as we follow closely what Scripture says, we are going to present the beautiful whole of Christian truth. You don't need to add anything to it. The Bible balances morality perfectly. And when you simply present it accurately, it's going to be beautiful. That's what Paul says. You are going to adorn it. When someone just reads the commandments, it might be hard for them to see what that actually looks like in practice. But when you take the commandments of Scripture, the values of Scripture, and it informs every part of your life, people are going to see, wow, that is beautiful. That is true. Even if I disagree, at least I can say, this person leads a better life than me. He's not bound in sin and selfishness like I am. He's not constantly depressed and anxious like I am. Again, even forget for a second if what he's saying is true. I can see he lives a better life than me. Maybe then there's something to the truth that he says he follows. That's what we do. When we follow Scripture's teaching, we are exemplifying a morality that is perfectly balanced, perfectly true. What are some instances of this? Well, as we follow Scripture's teachings, what are we going to do? We're going to value both love and justice. 
That's what we see at the cross, right? It's the greatest demonstration of justice on one hand. God will not just simply brush sin under the rug, so much so that he would sooner have his own son die than do that. Yet it's also the greatest demonstration of love, that he loves us so much that he would also pay the greatest price, his own son. He does not exalt love by diminishing justice, neither does he exalt justice by diminishing love. No, he presents them both in their ultimate expression. Likewise, in Scripture, we are, to, uh, we are to trust God and we are to work. We are to rest in God's absolute sovereignty and providence, yet we are also to take responsibility for the, respons- well, for the responsibilities that God has given us. We are to work hard while also resting and trusting in God's providence. How about another paradox? Jesus says we are to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Ultimately, in all of us, what are we saying? You need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's indeed a high standard. But there's no getting out of it. If you say, no, that, that sounds too complex to try and balance every commandment, every piece of instruction, every value, that's too hard. I'm just going to pick one. I'm kind of a judgmental person. Let's do truth. Uh, I don't like confrontation. Let's just pick love. I'll never bring up anybody's faults. I'll just always overlook and forgive. Or I'm going to be judgmental. I'm never going to forgive anybody. I need to stand up for the truth. If you do that, what are you going to do? You're going to make a caricature of Christianity. Is that not what the world does? They accuse us of both things. They say, oh, those people, they're so judgmental. Other people say, oh, they're so weak. They don't recognize any truth. Our standard is indeed to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, taking all of these values and expressing them together. And indeed, if your life is not a representation of sound doctrine, if you know that that's how it is, that when people look at your life, they say, yeah, Christianity, it's nothing. People look at your life and say, Christianity, I I guess it's worthless. That guy lives the same as everybody else. They look at your life and say, Christians, I hate them. I know a guy like that, and he's hateful and mean. Then you should ask yourself if you truly are a Christian. You should ask yourself, has the sound doctrine of Scripture truly come in and transform your life? Are you actually living according to it? If indeed the world looks at you and they think, they think that you live like everybody else, I think the answer is probably no. You're probably not living according to sound doctrine. And then is that a matter of you simply growing in maturity? Or is it a red flag that you need to realize that you are not truly a Christian? That you are all talk and you are no walk. That you need to supplement your faith with works. Not that the works save you, but you need to give evidence, as James 2 says, of your faith by your works. And when we do this, we're going to do a wonderful thing. When we abide by the commands, the beautiful representation of morality in Scripture, we're going to do a great thing. We're going to confuse the world. How are we going to confuse them? We're going to confuse them as they look at us and say, how can a person be like that? How can they have convictions that are so strong, that are absolute, and yet also be so kind and gracious to other people? How can they believe that men are totally depraved, and yet still that they are the images of God, and that as Christians they can do truly good things? How can they believe both of those? 
How can they submit and yet have such freedom? How can when they lead still be such servants? How can they believe that Jesus was God, yet that he was also a man? How can they believe that God is one, but that he's also three? What we seek to do as Christians is to give proper value to every Christian virtue, every fruit of the Spirit, all at once. And indeed, every virtue will temper and complement the other. And how are we to do this? How are we to take every part of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, and bring it to bear in a given particular situation? How do we know when it's a time for rebuke versus a time for overlooking sin? How do we know when it's a time to keep working hard? And how do we know when it's a time to rest and be patient and trust God? I'll tell you what you need. You need prudence. You need wisdom. And indeed with that, we come to point two. Point two is this, being controlled by sound doctrine. Being controlled by sound doctrine. As I said uh, last time I was preaching, Titus is a book of adjectives, a book of characteristics. And there is only one of these adjectives, characteristics, that is applied to every group. And it's not love, it's not faith, it's not goodness. In the book of Titus, that common word is prudence. I mentioned before it's translated in the ESV as self-control. In the NASB, I believe it's temperance. I believe the best translation, though, is prudence, while those other words certainly get at the meaning. Um, It's applied, first of all, to the elders in chapter 1, verse 8. They are to be prudent. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, the older men are to be prudent. In chapter 2, verse 4, where it says the older women are to train the younger women, the word for train in the Greek is just the, the verb form of prudence. It's like prudence size or something. So you got a verb out of prudence. Chapter 2, verse 5, again, the young women are told to be prudent. Chapter 2, verse 6, the one thing that young men are told to be is prudent. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, it says that the grace of God trains us all to live prudent lives. The only group in all of Titus, who's positive, you know, not the false teachers, the only group who does not have this word given to them as a standard is the slaves. But it's applied to them with, uh, it applied to everybody in chapter 2, verse 12. And what is prudence? Prudence is the ability to control oneself through wisdom. It's to have your mind Govern your heart and your stomach, not vice versa. And this stands in contrast to the stereotype of the Cretans. Do you remember the saying about the Cretans? What was their stereotype? That they were liars, evil beasts, filthy gluttons. Are beasts prudent? No, they're controlled by their desires, by their hungers. And then if you're a glutton, of course, you're controlled by your stomach. The people of the church in Crete are to be the opposite of this. They are to have their feelings, their desires controlled by their mind, the wisdom that they have in their mind. And yes, of course, wisdom takes into account your feelings, your desires, but it's not subjected to them. It's not that your heart and your stomach, your feelings and your desires, it's not that they don't matter, it's that they must be controlled by your mind. Indeed, and this is contrast to the world. What does the world say all the time? Why did you do that? I felt like it. Let me say once and for all. Because I felt like it is never a legitimate motivation for Christians. We never do things because we feel like it. 
We do things because this is what biblically informed wisdom calls for. Because I want to glorify God and it is my conviction that this is the best way to love God, honor Him, and serve my brothers. Wherever you are as a Christian, you are to be directed by a wise, biblically informed mind. You are not to be directed by your fears, your lusts, your greed, your impulses, none of those. Your mind ought to rule yourself. That's where we get the idea of it being self-control. The mind is guiding. Think of it this way. Um, A successful business needs two things. It needs good ideas, good products, and it needs good management. You need to have some good things that people want to buy, that they want to give money for, but you also need to be able to take those ideas and get them out to the public. You need to have a bunch of Uh, employees who can market this idea, who can create the product, who can distribute it to the people so that they can buy it, who can price the thing accurately. And if you only have the good ideas, but you don't have the good management, if you can't make the people work, if you can't get the product out in time, if you can't do other research to supplement the product, then does it matter that you have a good product? No. It would matter 0% if I had a great idea for a car or a phone. Why? Because I can't make a car or a phone. I don't have any resources to do that. It would be useless. The good ideas that you have in business only matter if you also are able to execute, if you have good management. It's the same thing with your life. You can have all the best ideas about Christianity and how you ought to live your life like Christ, but if you cannot control yourself with your mind, then what's the use of your thoughts? What's the use of all the sound teaching if the mind does not control the heart and the stomach? You can have all the best theology, but if you just are still controlled by the way you feel in given moments, you still do what just you want to do, then the thoughts, the ideas, the teaching, it doesn't really matter, does it? And indeed, this is what connects us to the, the previous thing. The way... The the previous point, the way that you are going to represent sound doctrine in your life so that the world will see your life and say, wow, Christianity is beautiful. That is a wonderful set of teaching. The way you're going to do that is by having your mind and the doctrine in your mind govern and control your hearts and your stomachs. And let me be very clear, if you are not prudent, If you do not follow your mind, if you are a slave to your emotions, if you're a slave to your lusts, to your greed, then you will be opening the door for people to revile God's word, for people to say evil things about Christians. You will not be adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. The doctrine of God our Savior is only going to matter in your life when you let your mind, the teaching, the wisdom in your mind, control your life. Now, how do we become more prudent? How do we take on this necessary quality? Well, there's a number of ways that you could do this. I think the most important, though, is that you increase your wisdom. Basically, you make your mind more powerful. You make your mind more powerful by giving it more biblical truth, more accurate wisdom. The more wisdom you have, the easier it's going to be, the stronger your convictions, the easier it's going to be to have your mind control your heart and your stomach. And how do you do that? How are you going to increase your wisdom? Well, obviously, first of all, and in a category of all of its own, you need to go to Scripture. 
That's simply how we become wise. Indeed, not only is it the source of our wisdom, it's also the thing that governs any other wisdom we get. If we seek advice from other believers, that's great, but we still need to make sure that that advice aligns with what Scripture teaches. You can read some books and get some good ideas about how to live your life, but you need to make sure that aligns with Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate test of what is truly wisdom. Second, the way that you increase your wisdom is through prayer. We have that wonderful promise in James 1, don't we? That if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. If you realize this morning, yeah, I'm I'm not very prudent, I'm not very wise. There is wonderful news. You have God's wisdom here enclosed. All you have to do is read it, meditate on it, take it into your heart, and you will become more wise. Furthermore, God has made you a promise that he will absolutely answer. If you need more wisdom, God has promised he will give it to you if you ask him sincerely. So do it. Ask him for wisdom. Say you want to become more prudent. Say you want stronger convictions that will control your emotions and your desires. And God has already said he's going to give it to you. So scripture, prayer, those are, of course, the the most important ways that we're going to get wisdom. And as I mentioned a few seconds ago, fellow believers, another great source of wisdom. This is through relationships. You ought to be developing relationships with people in the church. They can give you advice, instruction, wisdom on how to honor God in your particular circumstances. It's likely that there's people in here who have gone through your same circumstances before. Listen to them. Hear what Scripture helped them. Hear what God taught them. And then secondly, I'd add with that, you can also learn from believers who you've never met before, who have written these helpful things called books, where they've taken their wisdom and they've put it in print. Uh, I'd venture to say that there's probably no problem that you have, no amount of wisdom that you need that isn't in some book somewhere. Take that in. That leads us nicely then to, uh, to looking at what Paul says specifically to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, 7, and 8. And this is point number three, and it's this. Portraying sound doctrine to the church. Portraying sound doctrine to the church. Thus far, we have talked about how our lives influence unbelievers. We then talked about how a key difference between positively influencing the world and negatively influencing the world is by having prudence. And now, in these instructions to Titus, we will seek to glean something of how we are to influence others within the church. That's the contrast. With that first motif, we were looking about how we represent sound doctrine to the world. Here, Paul is giving specific instructions to Titus about how Titus is to get the church to live godly and good and righteous lives. That's his prerogative. That's his duty. He is to be in contrast to the false teachers. The false teachers were coming around. They were saying things that were incorrect, that were empty. And what was the result? Destruction in people's lives. Families were ruined. People were wasting their lives believing empty and worthless things. Paul's to do the opposite. He's to come through and say that which is true, that which is whole, healthy teaching. And by doing that, people then would live godly and righteous and good lives. And now, none of us uh, have are a direct uh, parallel with Titus. None of us have his exact role in establishing uh, churches in the apostolic era. But I think that 
Paul's instructions to Titus about how he is to disciple others, how he is to influence people in the church, how he's to get the Cretans who are selfish and not prudent to become prudent people, the methods that he is told by Paul, well, they're going to be instructive to us as well. And we only, with a little bit of variation, can apply them to our own lives. And again, just like with the world looking at your life, you are telling fellow believers, fellow members here at the church, you are telling them what it means to be a Christian by the way you live your life. You are telling them something about Christ. You are telling them how to live as a Christian. You can't opt out of it. The only way to opt out of it is to never come. But if you're here, if other Christians are seeing you live your life, you are going to be saying something about Christianity. You are going to be depicting the truth of Scripture. Are you being a good artist or a bad artist? That's, again, the relevant question. You are going to represent your beliefs, your theology, and your friendships. You're going to represent it anytime you give advice. You're going to represent it when you serve. In small groups, you're going to represent it as you parent your children, as you tell them certain things. Your beliefs and your ability to have those beliefs affect your life. It's going to come through. And even further than that, you know, with, with the world, we want to make sure that we represent uh, Scripture accurately to them. We want to make sure that they have a positive view of Scripture as much as we can. But when it comes to the church, it even goes a step further. It's not only that they're going to, that our fellow believers are going to learn something from us. I want them to learn something positive from me. I love you. I love you all. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I desperately want you to have your highest good and joy, which is becoming like Christ and knowing him. And we all then feel the same to each other. So it's not merely, well, I guess you're going to learn something from me one way or the other. No, I want to positively influence you. I want to disciple you as much as I can. And that's, that's the attitude not just of me, it's, that should be all of our attitude. I love everyone in here. I want everyone to become more like Christ. We are all united together. And indeed, that's what Christ told us, right? That's the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. And making disciples is not only getting them baptized, it's helping them grow. All of us have the prerogative to help our fellow believers become more like Christ. And listen, if you say, yes, that's what I want to do, I would love to help other people love Jesus more. The only problem is, is I know I'm not a very good representative of Christ. I'm not very mature. That's okay. That's okay in the sense that not all of us are the same level of maturity. God saved all of us at different points in our lives. If that is you, though, if, if you say, hey, I, I'm not, I don't think, mature enough to really be setting an example for others, then dedicate yourself to growing. That's okay. Say, hey, I want to disciple, I want to influence others, I know I can't do it great right now, so I'm going to dedicate myself to becoming then a godly person, a godly example that can be a blessing and a positive influence to others. You might not be able to do it right now, but none of us escape this responsibility to positively influence our brothers and sisters in Christ. With that being said, I think we see three ways to influence our brothers and sisters, to disciple them, to represent Christ. And the first is there in, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says to Titus, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, that translation is a bit misleading because the word there in the ESV that's translated teach, it's just simply not the word for teach. It's the word for speech. 
Uh, I think this is the only place in the ESV they translated as teach. There's a whole other word for teach that Paul uses all the time in the letter to Titus. Paul means something else by this word. He means your speech, everything you say throughout your life. Think of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I won't have you turn there, but I, hopefully you know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And what does it then say? And the commandments that I teach you today, they shall be on your mouth. They shall be in your heart. It says that as they walk along, along the road, they are to be talking about God's commands. As they go to sleep, they are to be talking about God's commands. As they walk through the door, they're to look at the door and be reminded of God's commands. Everything they do ought to be influenced by God's commands in Scripture. And that's us too. That's what Paul's saying to Titus. The sound doctrine that you have can't only affect your official sermons. It needs to affect everything you say. Indeed, that's the case for us. That's how you are going to represent Christ, disciple others, is when all of your speech is informed and transformed by, um, by sound doctrine. The healthy doctrine that you believe will come through in your reactions, your judgments, your reports of other people's actions, your jokes, your advice, the topics that you direct the conversation to. All of these should be informed and transformed by the truth of Scripture. And if you don't do that, if you realize, hey, I don't think my words are actually a great representation of Christ, well, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 12, of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The way to have sound speech accord to sound doctrine isn't just focus on, well, when I talk later today, I'm going to make sure I say this. No, the way you change your speech is by changing your heart. You say so many words, you can't possibly control them all. They're going to be a representation of what you believe in your heart. If you want to change your speech, if you want to make it more godly, change your heart. Now turn over to verse 7. The next thing that, Paul is, or that Titus is to do to influence others is to model good works. Though you cannot overestimate the role of teaching and speaking sound doctrine in Christian leadership, it is not the only means of leadership. For all that Titus teaches about sound doctrine and godly living, it is also necessary that he model this to the people. As you seek to influence others, you are falling short if you are not also providing them a model of what it looks like. Think about math class. How does it go in math class? Your algebra teacher comes along and says, all right, today we're going to solve, learn how to solve for variables. The way you solve for a variable is you uh, isolate the variable. All right, that's it for today. Uh, homework is 1 to 20. If that's all your math teacher did, what's the point of having a math teacher? You could have just read the textbook. The whole value of the math teacher is that they take the concept and they say, let me show you what this means. Let me show you how you do it. And they show all kinds of different examples of how this theoretical principle is going to play out in actual math problems. It's the same thing. If you think that you're discipling people because you, you know, just quoted some scripture to them or just said some helpful thought to them, but then they never have a chance to see you model that, they never have a chance to see you do good works, then you're not really helping them, are you? They might as well have just read a book. And why would a person not be modeling good works? Well, it could be one of two things. You could be not modeling good works because you're a hypocrite, because you do say one thing and you live a different way. You talk a big game about following Christ, but you don't actually follow him, and so in that way, you're not a good model of good works, and, well, you can't be. The other way, though, that you could be not modeling good works is because you're inaccessible. 
And again, like I said, people are going to see your life, sure, but you can minimize that influence by withdrawing, by not being around your fellow believers, by simply coming in and leaving, by simply showing up at small groups and not really talking to anybody. If people can't see your life, if they can't see how you live according to sound doctrine, then you can't be modeling the good works. And I'll take that a step further. Is not the the greatest time when we demonstrate God's transformation in our lives when we go through adversity? Is that not the the time that we're going to show most of all how we do not care about this world but the world to come, that we trust in God's love and his care for us? If that's the case, if your, your greatest good works come in the midst of adversity, well then why would you act like your life is all hunky-dory and perfect. If you do that, if you never tell the people in the church what the problems are that are facing you, well, then they can't see your good works, can they? If they never know whatever health thing you have, then they're not going to see the trust that you have in God despite of your health problem. They're just going to think, yeah, that person has a perfect life, and so they're expectedly happy. If you want to influence others, you need to let other people see into your life. And of course, you can't be an open book to every single person that walks in these doors. I'm not saying that. But also realize that you're not really discipling somebody if they can't see your life. Finally, in verse 8, the the third way that we influence others in the church positively is through our teaching. Uh, Again, This is going to apply most directly to someone like me who's preaching and teaching, but it also applies to us who give advice, who say things in small groups, who evangelize, who teach our children. And Paul says three things. The first two have to deal with the manner by which you give teaching. As you seek to teach Scripture, what God says in any context, the way you do it should be guided by these two words. The first is integrity. You need to do it out of a pure heart. You need to make sure that your instruction is not out of vainglory or greed, but out of a genuine desire to love the person, to help the person that you're talking to, and to glorify God. The second is that you need to have dignity. Your manner and tone ought to communicate the utter seriousness and gravity of our message. Wasn't this the defining mark of Jesus' teaching? He teaches as one with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. Of course, there are thousands of pastors in the U.S. who wantonly and brazenly ignore this command to have dignity in their teaching, making sermons about children's movies, dressing like male models, acting like they're stand-up comedians. As you teach others about Christianity, you are telling them about their eternal destiny, the God of the universe. Be serious. Have some decorum. Have some dignity. And then finally, the, the last word is about the things you say. It needs to be sound speech. It needs to be healthy teaching. It needs to be an accurate representation of what Scripture says. You should not be exaggerating the portions that you like the most. This is what it means to disciple, to lead others spiritually. And I'd like to end just by referencing 2 Corinthians two fourteen to 16. We won't turn there. But there, it's that wonderful passage where Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. To fellow believers, it is life to life. To unbelievers, it is death to death. And after saying that, then Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to represent Christ to the world? And that's the case, right? I say all this, that you need to represent what Scripture says. Who's sufficient for us? None of us. None of us are perfect representations of Scripture. None of us are perfect representations of Christ. We get that. 
And more than that, God knows that you're that way. He knows that you're but dust. He knows that you have to ask for forgiveness every day. Yet God, even knowing that, knowing every sin and every frailty that we have as humans, he still says that if we live righteous lives, we will adorn the doctrine of God. So it's good. Recognize your humility. Recognize your limitations. But also trust that God can genuinely make you do good works that will glorify and honor him. Let me pray. Lord, please have us do just that. Please have your word transform our lives that we would represent your beautiful son. We would represent the beautiful teaching of your word. Please have our lives be a testimony to unbelievers about the truth of scripture. Please forgive our sins, forgive our failings in this respect. Amen. Amen.